We now return to our show, Bringing Light into Darkness, with Dr. Charlie Clements, as Charlie describes any type of humanitarian involvement is equated with communism and free game for death squads in El Salvador of the 1980s and early 90s. The nation's only medical school, as you alluded to earlier, was closed by the military, destroyed, because they were treating people who had been tortured, and they were accused of championing them just because they would they would treat them. Agriculture cooperatives were accused of being uh, communist-inspired, and base Christian communities were, were attacked. A slogan you could see on a wall in San Salvador was, be patriotic, kill a priest. Mm-hmm. And that was part of what began the radicalization of Archbishop Romero. So it didn't take much to be accused. If you were attempting to speak out for social justice or on behalf of the poor, uh, you were thought to be a communist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And meanwhile, the American public was getting propagandized, right? I remember that period. And we were, we were being told exactly what you're saying, that there was a, this big communist type of deal and the Cubans and the Nicaraguans were sending in all these arms and the Russians. But we had these patrol boats in the Gulf of Fonseca. That's that Gulf that separates El Salvador from Nicaragua. We had these AWAC surveillance planes that could read a cigarette package from 20,000 feet in the air and that type of thing. Yet we were never able to, with all this aerial photography and all these assets and large U.S. radar installation in Honduras, there was no evidence that was ever presented to the American public of these claims because, in fact, many of the arms that they used were captured arms. It just reminds me so much of the information that's made available to us oftentimes by our government. It's just not on the up and up. It's not something that just started this last five or 10 years, but it it extends all the way back as well. Dick Cheney in the vice presidential debates talked about how the FMLN would come in and disrupt polling places. But you very articulately in your book on on pages uh, 57 through 60 or so, talked about a number of these elections and how the election process was something that was trying to be utilized by the underlying population, but that election after election was rigged and reversed, and it just became a feeble exercise. And so it elevated then into this kind of more of a, of a military opposition, especially as you've indicated and is easily validated that trade unionists, students, anyone that was outspoken about trying to promote any type of safety or land reform or that type of thing often just disappeared. I guess that was really my interest to also have you speak to the electoral process and the failed systems that we were claiming were supportive of a democracy that we were supporting and the FMLN was trying to destroy not just at that time, but as well decades later during the Dick Cheney-Edwards vice presidential debate in mid-October 2004, Dick Cheney totally misrepresented with falsehoods. Do you remember that, those passages in your book about the elections and such? Oh, absolutely. And this is exactly what we did in Vietnam. We, we decided who was going to get our support. We made sure that person won the election. And we consider these fair and free elections. And it's very hard to conduct a, any kind of election in, in the middle of, a, of warfare, much less when you have total control of the electoral process in the hands of a, of a repressive government. And the other thing to, to kind of remember, Pedro, is that, and it's important to kind of put numbers in perspective, a thousand Salvadorans a month were disappearing or being killed by death squads in 1980. And these weren't in combat because the war just barely started. These were, as you said, trade unions, school teachers, priests, nuns 
social justice activists, the students. But El Salvador had a population 50 times smaller than the U.S. So they had a population uh, of about 5 million. We had a population of about 250 million. So to understand the emotional impact of that, of this you know, leadership actually being decapitated, they were losing the equivalent of 50,000 Salvadorans a month because you, you multiply they have 5 million, we have 250 million. To understand the equivalent, you have to multiply by 50. Mm -hmm. They were losing what we lost in 15 years of Vietnam every month. Mm -hmm. And not to combat, but to, to murders, disappearances, to torture. Terrible. Yeah. And when you study the forms of repression and such, it's, it's it really is and really was stunning. In Guatemala, they would create these civil patrols where they would go into these towns and they would require people that were over 18 to join these civil patrols. And then in many instances, they then made them go to other villages or their own villages and not just harm, but kill people. Uh, in other words, you, you know, it's like it took the humanity right out of the right out of the person and such. And I'm just wondering, in El Salvador, what were some of the techniques that you, were there similar techniques like civil patrols or those types of things? Because the reason I bring that up is I'm really interested in the propaganda side and in the, in the rewriting of history. And because during that vice presidential debate, that was back in mid-October of 2004 with, with Dick Cheney and Edwards, I think, was the vice presidential candidate at that time. And, and Cheney had this to say, he said, quote, 20 years ago, we had a similar situation in El Salvador. We had a guerrilla insurgency that, that controlled roughly a third of the country. 75,000 people were dead and we held free elections. I was there as an observer on behalf of Congress. And as the terrorists would come in and shoot up the polling places, as soon as they left, the voters would come back and get in line and would, and would not be denied their right to vote. And today in El Salvador, it's a lot better because of that. I mean, that's just a complete blasphemous lie that nobody called out of the moderators during this electoral vice presidential debate process. What are your- well, Let me clarify why people were so eager to vote. In El Salvador, everyone had to carry an ID card with them at, at all times, 24 hours a day, called a cedula. And on that cedula, there, there was a place to see if you had voted. If you did not have that election stamp in your cedula, that implied you were a gorilla. That was enough to lose your life. So everybody was you know, determined to get that stamp and their ID card because that's what allowed them to live in somewhat more safety anytime they were stopped by you know, a soldier or a policeman and, and shown their ID card. So there was a lot of incentive to vote, no doubt about it, because not voting meant you could lose your life. So that's why they're suggesting that there was as much participation as there was, is that with that, with that? Right, when they, he made the comment, people would get back in line after, you know, there were disruptions. Well, yes, people were, were desperate to vote because if they didn't have that stamp in their ID card, they'd be in danger every day of the week, mm -hmm. every day of the year. I remember in your book, heroic resistance that went on because under Ronald Reagan and under Bush, the U.S. military aid in El Salvador, by conservative estimates from the New York Times, was some $6 billion, And that was not counting aid that was routed through Israel and the, the cost of training these Salvadoran military personnel that by the thousands at the School of Americas and such. And in fact, the New York Times columnist Anthony Lewis concluded, quote, the United States spent $6 billion supporting a Salvadoran government that was dominated by killers. We armed them, trained their soldiers, and covered up their crimes, end quote. How was the FMLN so 
so successful in their resistance to such an overwhelming uh, militarized and they totally had unencumbered air support for their cause. I'm talking about the, the government that we were supporting and such. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting question, uh, Pedro. And, and we're see a picture in the New York Times of a peasant holding up a bolt action rifle from World War One, shooting at an A-37 that has a Gatling gun on board that's firing 100,000 rounds a minute, putting a bullet in every square foot of a football field every 60 seconds. And, you know, the question planted by Dick Cheney and the U.S. press was, where did the peasant get that rifle? <laughs> not, not what were the conditions that would drive a peasant to use a rifle to take on an A-37? Right. What? What were the conditions that, that drove that, that kind of madness? And for the most part, the FMLN was supported widely by the people. And that's how they got food. And that's how they got intelligence. And that's how they, they, they hid. And so, you know, it's very, very hard, I think, to defeat a, an army that's really supported by the populace. The guerrillas had that advantage. And, and that actually, you know, although we were told that the Duarte and other elected governments were very popular, Christiani was another president. Truth is, when the FMLN were allowed to form a party, and just four years after the peace accords, they had a plurality. Uh, they had more seats in the parliament than any other party. And within 15 years, they had won two presidential elections. And so clearly, their political party, the FMLN political party, allowed to form after the peace accords. And before that, they were not allowed to have a, a political party. Yeah, Charlie, just as you say, when you have the full population behind you in a popular revolution, which we have witnessed throughout history, if you study it honestly or get honest information, it is near impossible to defeat that. On the flip side, if you have a totally unpopular government where all of the wealth is concentrated and people are finding it impossible to make ends meet, the opposite is true. The only way to sustain stability is through outright repression. And that's what we saw in El Salvador and in Guatemala and in Honduras and throughout Central America and Latin America, backed by the United States. Just as you said, if you were supporting the poor, then instead of acknowledging that you're supporting democracy, it's labeled communism so that repression appears to be an acceptable response, which it's not, in order to protect the profitability of these large multinational corporations that apparently our government is in bed with, as we've shown on previous shows. And so this fear that you talk about that compelled people to go in and try to vote, you know, I was reading stories about many times people would get arrested and they would take that card from them and then they wouldn't have that card and then they would be later rounded up. And when they didn't have that card and proof that they had voted, just as you've indicated, that was meant that they were uh, guerrillas, which meant the end of them. So when you were in El Salvador, were you actually trying to teach the, the underlying civilian population medicine as well? Or is that something that you were just basically administering that type of evade? Well, I think that, you know, as a, as a physician, you certainly need to attend to people's acute needs, which are often infections or cuts or trauma or fevers. Uh, but the really big gains are made in, in public health. And so, you know, I gain people's confidence by treating them and treating them with respect and, and, and care. And then we would launch campaigns to build a trains, for instance, because diarrheal diseases kill a lot of children in the developing world. I would insist that everyone have a trench within 30 seconds of walking from where they worked or where they lived or where they went to school. So when these aircraft came flying over, we could hear the whap, whap, whap of a, of a helicopter blades maybe two minutes away. The scream of an A-37, you might have 
45 seconds or a minute. And if people could get to those trenches, we pretty much neutralized the, the dangers from, from aircraft. You know, occasionally a, a bomb would hit right on a trench and, and we would lose people in that trench. But by the most part, you know, being in trenches meant they were protected from, from shrapnel. So there was a lot of public, public health campaigns that I launched while I was there. And I had help of lots of medics whom I was also trying to teach basic medicine to uh, at the time. And, uh, you know, to explain to people that, that mosquitoes seldom travel more than 100 feet from where they were born. And if they got rid of puddles of water or tires that might have standing water in them, they got rid of those kind of places, much harder for the mosquitoes to breed and much less problems with, with malaria or dengue or diseases like that. So a lot of public health attending to acute needs as well. Right. Now, the, the book is really fascinating. The, the title is also very striking, Witness to War. But you also were making use of like dental floss to sew people up. When you came to El Salvador and you, you talk about in the, in the book how many of these villages ha- had to move out in order to avoid the, the military, there's just some stunning reflections in that book, if I'm remembering it right. So if, if these people were to be caught, what would become of them if they were to be caught fleeing side of that volcano or wherever y'all were at? How important was it that they were not found out by these government sweeps? Well, it was it was a critical, uh, Pedro, because the uh, because of where they lived in this area, defended by the guerrillas, they were considered guerrillas or guerrilla supporters, and that meant that they were legitimate targets of war. So you may remember that the book began in a village called Copapayo that was preparing to flee. There's a word for that; it means sour cherry and Salvadoran guinda. But everybody was preparing to flee in a controlled manner into the into the hills to get away from the soldiers that were going to be coming. And, you know, I was doing things like preparing the mothers and letting them know how important it was that they keep their babies quiet as we pass through the lines, the government lines, because a crying baby could give away the whole, uh, the whole group. And, you know, that night one mother did smother her, her baby and God knows how she, she, she lived with that. And people preparing a little bit of food to take with them. But, you know, we all evacuated and one elderly man, refused to go and we came back and, and he had been murdered. But that same village, Copapayo, that thing, that same thing happened about six months after I left. And uh, they were hiding up in the mountains and the military kind of withdrew and hid. And so the villagers sent somebody back down. They said that the army's gone. The villagers came back down and the army sprang out and captured them. And they, they murdered 160 uh, civilians eight hours, but they did it in a, in a horrible fashion. They put the old women and women they didn't want to rape the old, the old women and, and young children uh, in houses and just threw hand grenades in the houses and set them on fire. Uh, then they raped the young women, you know, anybody from between 15 and probably 35 for hours on end before they killed them. And there was no one left in, uh, in the village. So, you know, and everyone knew that that was their fate. That was happening in uh, in many places in El Salvador, and that's why the guerrillas were there to, to to defend them, to kind of stall the army and give the people a chance to flee into the into the mountains. So, just so I have this right, just for our audience, I remember in the book is a very powerful passage where you're saying they're trying to sneak through a, a government controlled area at night, and I think you indicated that you had some amount of some type of sedative drug, very limited amount of drugs, obviously in that kind of setting but that some of that could be given to kids to put them to sleep so they wouldn't make any sounds. 
But if they woke up or if there was not enough to go around, the women would have to put not just their hand over their, their mouth, but like you're saying, one woman had to actually ended up accidentally smothering her own child just in order to, you know, because if that child gave up their location, they all die. Right, um, right. Yeah, uh, unbelievable and such. And, you know, Charlie, I mean, if, if this was not all a true story, your book and everything else, it should be a movie. You know, it, it's the spirit of doing the right thing that you did or tried to do. You mentioned your own personal travails where you did so much walking, you lost your toenails off all your feet. And, you know, you became really in the 10 months that you were there, you know, you lived as they lived and there was not much food. There was not much of anything. And what an amazing commitment. And, and more importantly, that book witness to war reveals a foreign policy reality that's been kept from the American public. The American public are such good people. And we just listen to people like Dick Cheney and believe all his nonsense and lies. And then only if we're fortunate enough to read such a powerful book like yours, do we really get the, the true inside story of, of what it was like to be a, uh, an El Salvadoran uh, in the 1980s. Pedro, th- thank you. And just since you mentioned movie, let me, let me bring this up, that the American Friends Service Committee, which is a, an NGO led by Quakers, asked me if they could make a, a film about my journey of conscience in 1983 when I got back. And I said, yes, so long as you don't consult me about it, because I can't be very objective. So they went around the country filming me as I spoke. They got some film from another filmmaker who would actually risk his life to go into uh, Guasapa and, and, and film for a while, a Canadian journalist named Don North, and put together a film that uh, was called Witness to War, the same name as the book. And in 1985, it won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Short. Although the Quakers made it, somehow it ended up in the hands of the, of the film distributors. And for years, they charged library prices for it. But now you can see it on Vimeo. It's called Witness to War. Mm-hmm. Another great film about what happened in El Salvador. Filmmakers that went into Guasapa because they wanted the American public to understand why people were fighting. And they spent about three months there filming people living their lives, dodging these bombs and, and aircraft. And that call, film is called In the Name of the People. And it can be seen because the filmmaker made it available on Google Docs. So if you go into Google and go into Docs, they have a vast library of films available to watch. For. And In the Name of the People uh, is a, uh, a film that was nominated for an Academy Award in 1984. And some of the footage from that film ended up in, in Witness to War as well. So those are two, two interesting films that bring visual and audio you know, to, the, to the written word. Very good. Well, before we let you go, I mean, we should have started the show off with this, but for those of you that are not familiar with Dr. Charlie Clements, MD, he is, is that an Austin native or just lived in Austin? Well, not a native, but I, you know, my formative years, six through the 12th grades were spent there. And so yeah, a lot of my heart's in, uh, in Austin. Right. And if people want to access any of the work that you've been doing around this El Salvadoran deal, in addition to the book, Witness to War, Charlie Clements, um, MD. Is there any other informational pathways that you would recommend people access? You know, there's a there's a few organizations continuing to work in El Salvador, doing work at the village level. Mm-hmm. And one of them I'll mention that people can find easily on the internet is called Cocoda, C-O-C-O-D-A dot O-R-G. And it's uh, in Indianapolis and it sends Americans down to, to understand 
village life in El Salvador and to help as the Salvadorans want them to, to be directed to what they're doing. And it's a terrific organization and I, right. I recommend it very positively. Very good, Charlie. So, hey, just to finish up for our discussion, you know, I think this history that we've been talking about, about El Salvador is not unique to El Salvador. It's, it's a tragic type of policy that we've had and exercised throughout Central America and many parts of Latin America as well. And so if you don't know this history, then you don't know why so many people are trying to come to the United States. And, and immigration policy would be really reparations to these countries so that they could rebuild schools and hospitals and all of the basic quality of life necessities that would really cut down on the number of people that would want to leave, right? So if you Absolutely. don't- I think people are fleeing the consequences of U.S. foreign policy in the, in the 80s and 90s and even in the end of the early part of the century, yeah. uh, including the, the terrible drug wars that we've helped create. Absolutely. And the gangs that have, you know, in that in empty environment type of thing that come to fruition. You know, the Honduran coup in 2009 was not so long ago. Same type of deal. You know, anytime you have these very powerful, good governments coming to power, like the Zelaya government, they did all these powerful healthy, good things for, for the poor. They don't last long. But anyhow, we are out of time. I wanted to thank you, Charlie, so much for the privilege of visiting with you. And uh, yeah, just going back over the notes of your book, I'm going to go back into that. It's, it's, it's interesting in my own evolution of social theory and all that of understandings. I, I cut my teeth on El Salvador back in the 70s in Guatemala, and it was really the first time from a more of a white privilege point of view that I saw that not everyone, you know, comes from the middle or upper middle class like I did and are not given these types of uh, opportunities that I had. And it's had a very, very lasting impression. So this is a very special program for me. And thank you so much for your time tonight. Well, let me thank you for what you've been doing for decades now. And uh, I think we probably first connected about 20 years ago at some time. Um, so thank yeah. you for inviting me back and great to, to be with you again. Right. Well, I, just as a last note, I have your book and every time I see you, I have you sign it. Yeah. I, it was originally signed in 1984. You came back in 2009 and signed it again. <laughs> and I look forward well, to you signing it two or three more times. I think my, my 60th high school reunion is coming up in, in uh, 2023. So I'll sign it again in 2023 when I'm back down in Austin. That sounds wonderful. Thank you, Charlie. I look forward to seeing you then. All right, my Thanks, friend. Thank you for light in darkness. Thank you for all your sacrifices over the years and take good care of yourself, brother. Thanks. All right. We'll see you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with Co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety.
Cheap pimps like I 